Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. It's Reconciliation Week, a time that serves as an opportunity for Australians to learn about our shared history, culture and achievements. This year's theme of More Than a Word, Reconciliation Takes Action, encourages us to consider how we can all contribute to achieving reconciliation in Australia. Reconciliation takes many forms, and on this program, we'll explore the need for repatriation of Indigenous objects and human remains, and the place this complicated and nuanced undertaking has in the reconciliation process. Throughout colonial history, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ancestral remains and sacred objects have been removed from their communities and placed in museums, universities and private collections both here in Australia and overseas. I'll be joined by a panel of experts in cultural repatriation shortly to explore this in greater detail. But first... Cornell Ozies is an Indigenous filmmaker who travelled to Germany to record the repatriation of Indigenous remains taken from far north Queensland. While in Europe, he bumped into his mob from Broome in Western Australia, who were also on a mission to collect the remains of their ancestors. This extraordinary story provides an insight into repatriation, truth-telling and the important role the return of cultural artefacts can play in promoting healing and reconciliation. In 2019, Ani Dai and my cousin Naomi went over to Germany to bring back the remains of my ancestors. This is a very historic journey, very emotional. A phone call from the Leipzig Museum prompted the trip the museum had discovered 14 remains of pearl divers that were taken from Broome over 100 years ago. We have remains of approximately 200 individuals who we are looking to return to communities because they have fair provenance. This is how the remains were held in those institutions. They'd arrived there and they'd sat for up to 100 years in these second-hand food tins. There really wasn't any respect for the fact that they were the remains of deceased people. So Gogan Neal was also part of the group and he's our senior law boss and custodian of our culture and he was there to bring the remains back. They regarded us as savages or animals for them to do such things. I am very, um, very sad. When it comes to the repatriation of human remains and cultural and special objects, it really is a story of reconciliation in action. It's about how did those objects get to where they are? Why are they so far away from their home and their communities? What was the relationship that was going on back then that those remains removed? But also, what's the opportunity for a new relationship going forward? So my auntie and cousin, travel with the delegates from Yaru and Garajadi Nation to collect the remains over in Germany. Unbeknownst to my family, I was also in Germany filming with the Jidinji people of the Cairns region. They were also there to get their remains of their ancestor. 
There was a thriving trade of body parts and remains being collected in the 19th century. And that's how the 14 remains from my people got over to Germany. Part of my custom, we use smoking ceremonies to cleanse. And so we took over plants from native to Australia to be used in those ceremonies on the day of handing back. After the smoking ceremony, we were then ready to be reunited with our ancestors. Thanks, everyone, for every effort that has been put into this. Uh, it's very special for us. And now we have a journey going back home to bring them back home. Rest them in peace. Even though I was there with the Yindinji mob, uh, repatriating their ancestors, I wasn't quite prepared for the emotion that I got when I walked into that room and saw my ancestors in a box. We carry this pain, but we carry this healing as well. Seeing those boxes, uh, I was overwhelmed with sadness, happiness. Um, it was so strange to be documenting one group of people, but then being a part of a whole bigger, larger picture. And just being there with family, it was just amazing. When it comes to the repatriation of uh, human remains and other cultural objects, it really is a story about reconciliation in action. It's about telling the story of how these objects came to be so far from their homelands, so far from the communities that they were brought from. It talks about the relationship between those people, those communities, and the collecting institutions or those individuals. And it really tells that next level of what do our institutions think about repatriation now? What's the relationship, no matter what happened in the past, what's the relationship we want to have today? And then just the actual returning of those remains, building new relationships, building new connections, revitalising communities. That's the story of the future. That's the story of actually how we turn around perhaps some uncomfortable truths and uncomfortable pasts into a better outcome for us. The beautiful thing about the people in Germany, they changed the lens on the way they saw our mob. It wasn't just objects anymore, they were people. And that is what made it easier for them to come to terms with giving back our people. That's Jugum Yaru man Cornell Ozies. You also heard from Di and Naomi Appleby and Uncle Neil McKenzie from the Yaru Nation, CEO of Reconciliation Australia, Karen Mundine, as well as Dr Michael Pickering from the National Museum of Australia. Joining me now to take a closer look at the issue is First Nations Director at the Australian Museum, Laura McBride, Curator of Indigenous Heritage and Repatriation at the University of Sydney, Matt Pohl, and Honorary Senior Lecturer at the Australian National University, Dr Lyndon Orman-Parker. Thank you so much for being with us. Laura, I might start with you. The theme of this year's Reconciliation Week is more than a word, reconciliation in action. For you, where does repatriation of cultural remains and artefacts sit with that concept? A truly genuine process of reconciliation includes addressing past injustices against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. 
uh, our ancestors and our cultural objects were removed from our communities to be studied scientifically. To undertake the healing process, these objects need to be returned to our communities, both our ancestral remains and secret sacred objects. How about you, Lyndon? For you, how does the concept that we have at Reconciliation Week, especially the idea of action, sit with the notions of cultural repatriation? Well, um, thanks, Larissa. Well, repatriation is very important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because Aboriginal people have been objecting to the removal of their ancestors and family members for many years. The first recorded objection was in 1825. Uh, and so Aboriginal people have said no to this and that Aboriginal people... Many believe that the dead should be buried with respect and placed back on country. And so the repatriation process means that it's also part of the healing process where Aboriginal people were removed from country, sent all over the world, overseas, in many institutions right across Australia, including here at Sydney University. Um, they were taken with great objection by those family members. And they have been calling for the repatriation and return of their relatives and family for many, many years. And it's taken a long, long time for institutions, in particular museums and universities, to now start handing back remains of our ancestors. And many people say to me when they come back, it's part of the reconciliation process. It's part of recognising the traumatic past that Aboriginal people have been through. Many people were uh, murdered in massacre sites. Many of those individuals ended up in institutions, in uh, anatomy departments for comparative anatomy. Uh, and for the study of Western science or so-called Western science. So it's very important that Aboriginal people want their ancestors back, they want their associated burial objects back and also their sacred sacred objects back. It's not only about uh, reconciliation, it's about healing the past. And many Aboriginal people say it's about that sense of healing once those ancestors have, have been returned to country and it's bringing the community together to actually ensure that that healing process takes place. So with the Reconciliation Week upon us, it's part of that healing journey of this traumatic past that's been inflicted on Aboriginal people. Matt, and how about you from your perspective and the work you're doing in this space? Why is cultural repatriation important to the reconciliation process? When you look at just some of the unethical contexts in which these remains have been used over the years, you know, racial hierarchies, even eugenics and things like that, the, the collection of these remains is just so hurtful on so many different levels, historical and contemporary. When you work with repatriation, like each community is going through different stages of grieving and it's just an important function that museums can do today to actually try and rectify these mistakes of the past, I guess, and actually... Um, atone for some of the broader historical disadvantage that the collection of these remains represent. So um, it's been an incredible opportunity, a transformative opportunity, I think, to actually acknowledge what has happened in the past and actually heal country too. Lyndon, can you talk us through, in terms of context, some of the historical events and the ideologies which led to Indigenous cultural objects and remains being taken. Yeah, so many remains were taken uh, for the purposes of comparative anatomy, so uh, and also eugenics, which was also the you know measuring people's skulls and the lumps and bumps to interpret uh, personality types. Uh, there were certainly theories of evolution that made a contribution to the comparative anatomy, which meant that uh, there were a hierarchy of races with, of course, white European 
being at the top of that hierarchy and, of course, uh, Indigenous people often being at the lower end of that hierarchy. And these uh, theories of evolution, uh, the use of comparative anatomy, also led to uh, white superiority and people actually believing that they were superior, therefore the colonial murder and invasion of different countries took place because people were inferior to uh, the white man. And so that process in, in and of itself uh, created mass destruction on a global scale during the colonial process for Indigenous people. Uh, and many of the remains, not only Australian Aboriginal, but Maori people, Native Americans, South American, Africans were ended up in institutions. And so globally, there was a global movement at the time of trying to stop the removal of ancestors uh, and have them kept on country. Laura, I want to pick up something that you've all mentioned, and it's, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more so that a non-Indigenous audience particularly would understand what the impact is of the removal of these objects on First Nations people and their communities. Well, there are family members, our ancestral remains, and as Lyndon has said, that um, that has always been opposed. Um, you look at someone like Truganini, who witnessed her own family and friends being taken into museums and asked for her body to have a stone tied to it and be dropped at the deepest part of the ocean so that she wouldn't end up in a museum. And um, unfortunately, she did end up in a museum for many, many years. But the removal of all cultural objects has an effect because at the same time, we weren't allowed to practice our cultures and languages. And so often when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples come into the museum, they're happy to see their objects, but at the same time, they're really sad that all their objects are in one large room and that we don't have the same access to those objects as other people. It's very emotional. And um, my mission is to try and repatriate as much as possible to our communities uh, in the healing process. Matt, when you listen to Laura, it helps sort of consolidate what the impact is on First Nations people of uh, having objects removed. But from your perspective, how much knowledge and understanding is there amongst the broader Australian community about this history? And whose responsibility is it to educate them? I guess there's not a lot of awareness, really, of the extent of just how much was collected. I mean, where they've done audits, there's in museum collections around the world, there's more than 250,000 objects, like mostly stone tools, uh, other items that were collected. But in terms of the responsibility, I think it's all of Australia's responsibility to learn more about this process and to actually be aware of just how important it is for communities to have these remains especially back, as well as the objects too. But, you know, when you're talking about remains, you know, they're from lands where people were born, lived and died for countless generations. You know, to return them back to country is a real sense of healing. And um, when you see that repatriation happening, it is actually reconciliation in action, at least between museums and the hundreds of communities all around Australia who have their remains um, in museums. Um, Lyndon, you've worked in the area of cultural repatriation and heritage protection for a number of years and you're a recent member of the Australian Heritage Council. I'm interested to get your thoughts on what shifts in attitudes you might have observed with the government on this issue over the years you've been working in the area. 
So um, people say that the so-called repatriation movements uh, really happened in the 70s, but it, as I've said before, it happened a lot earlier than that with the objection of uh, the removal of ancestors. But as the uh, repatriation movement happened, in, and it came at the same time as um, Aboriginal rights movement in Australia, people actually started to lobby institutions, the Australian government, over a number of years. We had a lot of resistance from anthropologists, uh, museum workers, universities to the repatriation process. People wanted to retain them for scientific purposes. Aboriginal people objected to that. We finally had some movement uh, with basically the archaeologists at the start of the movements uh, supporting the return. We had the World Archaeological Congress, uh, had a, what was called the Vermilion Accord in 1986, which really supported Indigenous people's rights. We had the museum sector in uh, the uh, 80s then start to change policy, saying, well, we'll, we'll repatriate uh, Aboriginal remains, but we have to know whether they're known or named individuals. You have to come to us and say, well, we know exactly who this individual was, therefore, as family members, we want them returned. Uh, and then, so slowly, Aboriginal people have been chipping away at these institutions, saying, actually, no, we want the unconditional return of our ancestors back uh, and for their dignified reburial. We also want their associated objects uh, returned as well and our sacred, sacred material returned as well. And so with, with that process, institutions slowly began to change. We still have some institutions that are a little bit recalcitrant about uh, returning their ancestors, but through continuing lobbying by Indigenous people, uh, institutions are now finally starting to, to turn around and get them and have them back, uh, including from overseas. So we've had over 1,500 ancestors returned from overseas over the last 10 years. Uh, the Australian government policy has changed in the last 10 years to allow these programs to operate. And so it's, it was actually back in 1997, uh, when Ken Kolbung, uh, Noongar, went to uh, England to request the return of Jägen, uh, a warrior that was killed during uh, the colonial times. And so through his lobbying and the lobbying of the British government for his return, really set in train uh, the British to actually start thinking about repatriation and actually changing their policy to allow many remains from uh, British and European institutions back into Australia. Laura, we often hear about the need for tr a truth-telling process. Do you think cultural repatriation is an area which has been overlooked within that notion of truth-telling? I think cultural repatriation has been overlooked in the truth-telling process, and that's because not many people are aware of cultural repatriation. Many people, many visitors to the museum are surprised to find out that we still hold ancestral remains. Uh, the Australian Museum has been repatriating ancestral remains for around 30 years now, and we still have hundreds of ancestors on site. So I guess awareness is something that can come out of the truth-telling process, being transparent about how many ancestors we have and actively working with communities and going to communities. Lyndon mentioned before that um, Aboriginal people had to come to museums and they still have to come to museums, but we would like to change that around in that we seek out communities, tell them that we are holding ancestors from their areas and work with them to find a way to rebury them in a dignified way. Just want to um, pick up on that with you, Matt. Obviously, you work in the curatorial space. And I was just wondering if you could share with us some of your reflections on how communities have responded to the repatriation process. 
Yeah, it's always interesting. I mean, the first question, I guess, is, you know, why do you have them? And it's a very hard question to answer when you put it in the historical context of where they've come from. I mean, sometimes they also come through repatriation projects because they were held in private collections as well before they were given back to museums. There's actually a number of them that, you know, aren't weren't, you know, scientifically collected. They were just owned by people in their private collections of museum artefacts. Each repatriation is a process of also repatriating the historical context of how it came and giving communities as much information as possible. And sometimes that involves, these days we're repatriating more like um, historic photos, um, sound recordings, all these different sorts of information as well as the objects, as well as the ancestral remains to sort of allow communities to have that space to really understand what was going on and really return it to the proper place that they can. I mean, in more than 90% of cases, the remains can't actually be returned to where they were taken from. So there has to be these processes that step in between the national parks and the Office of Environment and Heritage, local councils, local Aboriginal land councils. It's not just a simple matter of just handing the remains back. There's a logistical process there which involves a lot of conversation and I guess a lot of truth-telling in that sense and communities really need to be have as much information as possible to make those decisions so that they can return these ancestors respectfully and safely with cultural safety. Lyndon, listening to Laura and Matt, it's clear about the role that repatriation can play in that truth-telling process. The other big picture conversation we have, of course, is about treaties. So following on from that, what relationship do you see between the process of cultural repatriation and treaty? Um, well, I see uh, treaty as a process of practical outcomes for Aboriginal people and agreement making between uh, all jurisdictions, state and federal governments and Indigenous uh, peoples. And so part of that treaty process, repatriation could form part of that. So it would be an agreement, for instance, with the state governments, or it could be an amendment to legislation to allow repatriation. Uh, At this particular point in time, there is only uh, one state, and that's the state of Victoria under the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Act, which actually legislates for repatriation of ancestors and sacred sacred objects. So under that legislation, uh, the ancestors and the sacred sacred objects are now considered under the ownership of traditional owners from wherever they come, even outside of Victoria. So that's an important piece of legislation. So I'd like to see that sort of legislation mirrored right across all jurisdictions and perhaps an overarching Commonwealth piece of legislation that allows for the return of ancestors from overseas. At this particular point in time, it's all policy-based and there are such discrepancies between all jurisdictions around Australia that um, I'd like to see everyone take on board legislation very similar to Victoria. And I'll give you an example. For instance, you can sell uh, sacred objects online in Queensland, but it's illegal to do so in Victoria. So we would like to see all jurisdictions get together and work towards a very national approach to the repatriation process uh, for both ancestors and um, sacred sacred objects. And as part of that change, so for instance, Victoria's going through a treaty process at the moment, there could be improvements to that particular piece of legislation as part of that process. And again, we have the um, McDodson, uh, who's the Treaty Commissioner in the Northern Territory. Um, again, there could be improvements in, in, in legislation and giving more rights to traditional owners in this space. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. 
I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight, we're bringing you the panel discussion, The Journey Home, Reconciliation Through Repatriation. My guests this evening are Laura McBride, Matt Pohl, and Dr. Lyndon Orman-Parker. Laura, obviously museums have a big role to play in this space. You're the Director of First Nations at the Australian Museum now. It's a new role and probably reflects the higher visibility of our own people in these institutions. From your perspective, what role are museums playing in holding these objects? So it's a a legacy project that I've taken on, essentially. So uh, the Australian Museum is the custodian, the state are custodians of our ancestral remains and our cultural objects. But what's really important and what we can do now is ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples control the care, the interpretation and representation of those objects, whether they're in public spaces or when community comes to visit. It's very important that we control our own representation in these spaces as they have authority. Uh, Museums, universities have authority over how Aboriginal people are perceived by the general public. So it's incredibly important as custodians that we work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to ensure that we're getting that representation right. Can I just um, maybe dig a little deeper into that? And obviously it's a huge responsibility that museums have. There are new voices and new perspectives coming in with positions like yours. What measures are in place to ensure that traditional owners have access to collections? So we always ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have full access to their collections, but there are policies and procedures in place that sometimes hinder us from being able to engage communities properly with their cultural objects. For instance, Lyndon was just talking about um, some policies that hinder repatriation. Uh, For us, for those um, ancestors are registered as collection objects and we do have to go through a deaccession process, which can be quite lengthy. Um, Not only do we have to ensure that we're deaccessioning within our museum, but then it leaves our museum to be signed off by the Minister of the Arts and then the Governor. So I would like to see in the future that we could give more agency to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff and to the museum itself that's very open to repatriating our ancestral remains so that we can fast track that process. Because this is already traumatic enough when you're engaging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the repatriation process, but sometimes the length of time that it takes us to complete these tasks can further compound the effects of that. You've just spoken about some of the barriers. Has there ever been or is there, does there remain resistance to the return of objects and remains? Within my cultural institution, the Australian Museum, we're very open to repatriating ancestral remains and secret sacred objects. We still cannot repatriate any of our cultural objects that do not fit those classifications. And so we are working around that by returning objects on long-term loans. I do often say to communities that we should continue to get policies and procedures changed and fight for that. But at the same time, what else can we do in the meantime? And one particular area I'd like to look at is cultural revitalisation. Having Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples come into museums, look at objects and work with objects and revitalise those making practices within communities. We've seen this happen with uh, Nawi, the tide bark canoe making here in New South Wales. 
We, in fact, hold one of the first new models of Nawi in our Gadagrang exhibition. It's not a very good model, but it's one of the first. And about eight years later, communities are making really good tide bark canoes and using those. We've also seen uh, cultural revitalisation using museums with possum skin cloak making, particularly coming out of Victoria and now that's spread here in New South Wales. And I myself and my family are making possum skin cloaks. And weaving is another example. So I would like to see, while we still fight to get our objects back uh, onto country, that in the meantime, while that legislation takes time to be approved, that we can use museums in other ways Matt, just following up from that, from the work you're doing in the, in the space you're doing it, what responsibility do you think institutions have to return these objects? An incredible responsibility. As Laura was just saying, the cultural revitalisation that can come from the repatriation of these knowledges, like traditional craft-making practices, the environmental knowledges, which are sort of bound up in the way that objects are made and known and things like that. Sometimes in relation to objects as well, repatriating builds museums all around the country and, you know, keeping places and reinforces them. I mean, they don't always go back to individuals' particular items as well. If there are a significant number of items in a collection, for example, that's returned. So they do spark like a new idea of museums being the one singular place here in the city and spread it back round to the hundreds of, you know, for example, remote art centres, which are in these days representing 20, 25 years of their own history through an art gallery and turning slowly into museums as well. So there are plenty of objects that will be returned to community and never put on display like that, for example, but it does repatriate that cultural infrastructure for communities to gain those skills in their communities. And it's a slow process, that, but it's really interesting to watch as well as... um, you know, museums are sort of decentralising a little bit and instead of being the one singular place holding everything in the middle of the city, that cultural responsibility is being shared a bit more and repatriation really facilitates that to happen, I think. So ultimately, it, it is a good thing that repatriation is actually building the cultural infrastructure in many of the remote parts of the country. The arguments sometimes put forward against repatriation are that having the objects on display allows them to be seen and people can learn about what they mean and also that the particularly important artefacts are better protected in the museum space. From your perspective, what's your response to those kind of arguments and how should they be weighted against the responsibility of returning objects to their traditional places? In our experience here, some of these objects have had for more than 150 years, you know, non-Indigenous voices interpreting them and projecting their own ideas on what these objects mean to them. One of the recent projects we're doing was just allowing the community to have an interpretive layer, you know, in language or, you know, in song or in any way that they want to actually interpret these objects And it seems like it's obvious, but it's actually quite a new thing in terms of just giving this cultural autonomy and the interpretive voice to different sections of the community and allowing them to actually not use these objects, but sort of own them, not in a legal sense, but in a moral sense. So I think that's the big shift that's sort of happening in the way that museums engage with these collections and some institutions, even internationally, are looking at the templates that was sort of part of the self-determination movement in Australia and many other First Nations communities are actually looking to what's happening in Australia. So 
if there's one glimmer of hope that has come through some of the incredibly traumatic histories associated with the collection of ancestral remains and objects, it's that the way that communities have owned the process and turned it around into something which is a lot more empowering, I think is one of the more important aspects to understand about repatriation. You've all spoken about the enormous shifts in this space, which have been, as Lyndon says, ongoing, but have obviously changed as we've had more Indigenous people working in the space. From your perspective, Matt, what still needs to be done in terms of some further changes, building on what you've just said? I guess it comes down to what Lyndon was saying with the policy and coming from the top down too, but creating more opportunities for culture to be practised is probably the basis of how it all works in terms of flipping that narrative of museums sort of being these holders of knowledges and informations and objects and ancestral remains and actually just creating more social spaces around the country where, you know, the, the knowledges and informations which are held in museums aren't just left on dusty shelves but actually allowed, not allowed, but given to community members so that they can practice their cultural autonomy a lot better. You know, that's the good thing about the way museums are sort of heading, I think, that there's actually a much more performative way to show culture rather than just sort of representing it in a museum case. Lyndon, I was hoping you could talk us through the process of returning items to country. How do you identify governance and ownership and what challenges arise? Um, so governance and ownership of remains and sacred sacred objects is something for the Aboriginal communities concerned. Often an institution will actually go back through the archives and do a lot of provenancing research. So uh, communities don't want to just receive back ancestors when they don't know exactly where they're from. And so often in institutions it may have just recorded uh, ancestor from Australia or it could just say Victoria, it could say something like the Murray River and not give very much detail. So a lot of research goes into, from museum staff, into actually trying to find out exactly who collected the remains, when they were collected, who were they collected from, and if they are known or named individuals, that's fantastic. Uh, and also the community or tribal group or clan from where they came from. Um, because it's a very sensitive process and people want to pay respect and give due funerary rights to the right people and rebury them or place them in the right location that they need to happen. And so we've had um, several research, major research projects through the Australian Research Council uh, and at ANU on a project called Return, Reconcile, Renew, which is doing a lot of what we call provenancing research uh, for communities of origin on those ancestors that are going to get returned. And part of that process is actually empowering Aboriginal people to actually come in and assist in that research process uh, and then giving them as much information as possible, as Matt was saying before. But it's about changing the narrative. It's not necessarily about the institution, the museum itself, doing some good and trying to rectify the wrong in the past. It's also about allowing and empowering Aboriginal people to tell their side of the story because often in museum collections, it's the colonial history that's told. It's told by the people that may have collected them and sometimes in horrific circumstances but also those horrific circumstances, people weren't self-incriminating at the time that they were having these appalling practices in place. So it's about engaging with the communities, getting them back into the institutions and getting, giving them a chance and a voice to actually participate in this process 
fully. And when that's done, as you can see with the return from Germany earlier, that it's a very powerful thing to do when we engage uh, Aboriginal people in that entire process. And that's part of what we call self-determination uh, and allowing communities and people to come and make those decisions. So many sta individual states and territories have their own uh, Aboriginal heritage councils, and that's a good starting point. So where you have ancestors that might be just provenance to a state, then it's up to all Aboriginal communities in that particular state to have those discussions and see what they wish to happen to those individuals where we can't actually return them back to country. So it might mean having a state resting place. And at the Commonwealth level, we have a lot of remains that return over from overseas that just says Aboriginal Australia. So we don't really know where they come from. So there are many ancestors sitting in the National Museum in Canberra out at Mitchell in a tin shed, which I say is highly inappropriate. We've had the Aboriginal community calling since the uh, late 70s and early 80s for a national resting place. And what we talk about when we say a national resting place, we're talking about a place that is, shows the dignity that these ancestors should be shown and a restful place. So we had a recent report by the Advisory Committee on Indigenous Repatriation that said we need a national resting place that was widely consulted uh, with communities right across Australia. They said they want a national resting place in Canberra. At the last election, the Morrison government went to the election saying that they would uh, support a national resting place. We are still waiting for that uh, in the last budget. Um, Josh Frydenberg gave money to the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies to do a full business case for a national resting place and a cultural precinct in Canberra. So I'm very delighted and pleased that this process is going to happen, but also having a detailed business case to government doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get funded. But I think given that it uh, has bipartisan support that we really do uh, desperately need a national resting place uh, for those ancestors. And we're not just talking about just a few, we're talking about several hundred. And there are also ancestors all over the world, and some of them just provenance to Australia, uh, that need to come back home and be placed in a national resting place. And then it's up to us as the Indigenous community of Australia to decide how, how that uh, resting place is going to operate. And something that all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can come together and celebrate, but also as part of the national resting place, telling this full story of... Um, the collection of ancestors and then the repatriation story. Laura, just to follow up from that, you have mentioned that the Australian Museum has a, a position of wanting to facilitate repatriation. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more in detail about some of the processes that you go through to make sure that happens. Absolutely. So um, what we have been doing is researching our ancestral remains and ensuring, looking for as much information as possible, both within our archives and elsewhere. So what we're trying to do is find out as much information as possible about each of the ancestors within our collection. Then what we do is contact communities and see if they are ready um, to have their ancestors repatriated. Not all communities are ready or at different levels. As some wouldn't know how to repatriate their ancestors. We also don't own very much land in, in certain communities. And so a lot of different uh, problems arise uh, where 
Would we rebury ancestors? How would we undertake that process? So it's really important that we support people through that process. So the Australian Museum works with the uh, New South Wales Heritage to be able to return ancestors to communities. And it's really important that it's the Aboriginal communities themselves who are self-determining in that process of when, where and how. So the Australian Museum has no say over any of that information or where they would like to rebury their ancestors, how they would like to do that, how they should be doing that. And so it's really uh, about listening. Within the Australian Museum itself, we go through uh, several processes to do that. And one thing we need more support for is staffing. Um, we need more support in funding to be able to undertake those processes uh, genuinely. As an Aboriginal woman, what do you hope the impact of your presence within an institute like the Australian Museum will be? Just uh, really that, well, f first and foremost to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities is to understand that we need to be within museums. They do control our representation, so it's important that we are there protecting our cultural objects and our ancestors uh, for the future to be a role model uh, to show people that these are not Western spaces anymore, that museums can work for us and um, we should be working with our colleagues within these spaces to ensure that they know how to do these things correctly and in culturally appropriate ways. I hope that the position will also be able to uh, build capacity to have other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people join us within the museum. I'm going to pick up on two of those points with you, Matt. The first is just going back to the idea that um, one of the challenges around repatriation is the resourcing that's needed. From your perspective in that space, what are some of the challenges and what sorts of resources and safeguards could help? Yeah, it does come back to staffing because so much of the actual process, you see key community members really bringing their own resources to the table, their own networks, their own friendships and their own understanding of the process to actually make it happen. So I guess it's that, I guess more on a statewide sort of basis, there has to just be more recognition of the role that elders and community members play in the decision-making process that goes on with the, a lot of the processes associated with repatriation. You know, it's essentially creating a funeral for someone who's already had a funeral and been unfairly brought into a museum context. So they can be quite um, fraught and distressing sort of experiences for communities as well when the repatriation takes place. So I guess it's that, you know, cultural competence and understanding that needs to go on at the local council levels and also at the state level and that to actually provide the right sort of resources in this first step of the repatriation process because I've also seen that when the repatriation takes place, people feel like a real sense of reassurance and they feel like they've been listened to and heard, which is actually pretty powerful. So institutions shouldn't really be um, afraid of repatriation in that sense because it is a powerful community-building sort of process that you see. And I guess in our experience, we sort of not take it for granted, but yeah, it's, you realise a lot of the time that at the um, administrative level or the bureaucratic level or whatever, they don't actually see the value of these sorts of uh, community processes that happen. So the more attention we can get to that sort of 
community resilience and how, you know, when these things happen, people really come together in really powerful ways. I think that's something that we need to find ways to recognise better. It does lead nicely into the second thing I wanted to pick up from what Laura was saying, which is about the importance of having First Nations people in this space. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about what it means to you as a First Nations person to be working in the environment and what a difference it's made to have more people in the sector. Oh, it's incredibly different. I mean, I've worked with elders who've told experiences of sort of being turned away from the art gallery in New South Wales when they were younger, for example, compared to now when, you know, it's up front in the front of most of these institutions. Um, it sort of goes up and down over the years. You sort of see, you know, there's sometimes a lot of staffing attached to a particular project or a particular push, but then the sort of the funding for that falls away. I think it's really important to create that sustained sense of employment, which is about skilling people in remote art centres and that, for example, too, not just in the big city institutions, because we rely on those remote art centres as much as the communities rely on the museums in terms of getting information as a two-way street. So it's about finding a more holistic way to think about museums, because the museum collections are like we said, owned and activated and animated by communities. So for communities to be able to practice culture via museum collections, we need to be a lot more open-minded about the fact that that means connecting better to the hundreds of communities all around the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia and, you know, not forcing people to come to the city to work. You know, it means sometimes that as museums we go to communities and do the same work. It's a different way of understanding it, but it's a much more relevant way of working to communities to actually be out there sort of with communities doing this work. Lyndon, I want to pick up on an area that you've given a lot of thought to. I was just wondering if you could share with us what you think the opportunities and challenges of using digital technology are to preserve Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and heritage. Yeah. The digital age brings with it lots of uh, exciting and new ways of... Um, recording information, but also uh, we've got vast amounts of information in institutions like all of the museums that we've been speaking about. We've got information in IATSIS, National Film and Sound Archive. And so at the moment, there is a big push to digitise, especially uh, audiovisual materials. So anything on magnetic tape, uh, we have what's called the 2025 deadline. So anyone with VHS tapes, uh, mini DV tapes or other formats that had recorded cultural heritage onto it, uh, or whether it's being songs, performances, uh, cassette tapes, that might be under your... Um, now is the time to really think about getting those digitised because magnetic tape is about to run out and, you know, it will be unusable into the future. And so it's very important for Aboriginal communities to start digitising material that they actually have that has recorded perhaps stories from their grandparents and others, and not only Aboriginal communities, all people across Australia, um, to start thinking about how you can preserve all of that material. And once it's digitised, it becomes much more accessible to people. Uh, and to family members and communities. And that sort of is a good way of the intergenerational transfer of cultural knowledge in communities through that digitisation process. Um, we've found that um, institutions are now going back to do the repatriation research, digitising that material and sending it back to communities of origin. And by having access to information, it's very important for uh, people and Aboriginal people to make informed, can, informed decisions about the repatriation process uh, and, and what they're going to do with perhaps their cultural objects that get returned as well. So 
digital technology is very exciting way of um, Aboriginal communities to, to utilise. Uh, I work in several remote communities and people are now, a lot of drone work is being used to manage sites that might be inaccessible. Uh, and so with the repatriation process, it's, it's from the museum, it gets returned to the community, then the remains may be returned to a particular burial site or a sacred site on country. Then it's often up to the ranger groups play a very important role in maintaining sites on country and, of course, managing it with uh, fire, fire programs and the rest of it. So one of the things that I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years with a shift in actually taking ranger groups seriously and the increase by the Commonwealth in funding ranger groups right across the country is that land maintenance. And of course, repatriation of ancestors is very much a land-based activity. And so we can see that the ranger groups are now taking on those responsibilities as the employees in communities to actually maintain those sites and the, the graveyards and things like that. And I think it's um, it's very important when we talk about the funding that it happens both at the institutional end, but it also, the funding really has to um, f uh, down into the community level. And so we've been very pleased, and some of the ranger groups I've worked with, very pleased with the now seven-year funding. So it gives them security of employment in a community, and you can do long-term activities with that funding, uh, and in particular cultural maintenance of sites, which is very important. So. Though we're almost out of time, I can squeeze in one more question for each of you. So I'll just start with you, Laura. From your perspective, how much work is still left to be done in this space? And as a curator, what do you see your role in that process? I believe there's a lot more work to be uh, completed in this space. I feel like it's, the work has only just begun. Um, it's now that museums and collecting institutions and universities are working with First Nations people has only really recently started. Um, we are ourselves undertaking a digitisation program, Linden. It'll be a 10-year project in which we digitise all our cultural material. But something that we spoke about that was really important in that process was that we worked with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities to digitise the cultural collections. And so something that's really important about repatriation is that when you're giving back to communities, they are also reciprocating knowledge and a whole range of information that can actually increase the value of the cultural collections that museums hold. So giving back is a really good process for Australians then because then Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities give to institutions and that information is shared with the Australian public. So it's a two-way relationship and a very vital one. And Matt, how can the broader Australian community play a role in cultural repatriation and how do we further educate on its importance to reconciliation? I think by better understanding, um, you know, caring for country is something that's learned through the repatriation process as well. Um, you know, to restore some of the environmental habitats around Australia as they were preserved by, you know, generations of Aboriginal people is part of understanding Australia better. And the way that we care for objects is no different to the way that country is cared for. So if the broader community can sort of take something from this process and sort of see how that also applies in the obligations to care for country, I think that would be a pretty amazing outcome. 
And Lyndon, what's your argument for why the broader Australian public should take an interest in the issue? How can they assist in the process? So there's a couple of things people can do. First of all is uh, support uh, Indigenous voices for the National Resting Place in Canberra. And I think that there's, that provides an opportunity for all Australians to come together and learn more about the repatriation process. I think there's a very good opportunity now to engage uh, Aboriginal communities in the repatriation process through... Uh, people that actually work on country. So, for instance, the mining industry has a large uh, part to play in this. Often when uh, you have site clearances that uh, a lot of objects and Indigenous information will be kept in a shipping container on site. So there's room for industries that work on Aboriginal country to work with local communities, develop safekeeping places in conjunction with those Indigenous people. So... um, for instance, and we saw with the destruction of the caves in WA, there's room to improve in terms of improving cultural heritage legislation, uh, particularly in WA. There's room to improve the way that industry works with Aboriginal people and to support local keeping places and to support the local Aboriginal ranger groups in the work that they do on caring for country. Well, I'd like to thank you all for sharing your insights into this really important and complex subject My guests this evening have been Dr. Lyndon Orman-Parker from the Centre for Heritage and Museum Studies at ANU, First Nations Director at the Australian Museum, Laura McBride, and Curator of Indigenous Heritage and Repatriation at the University of Sydney, Matt Pohl. Thank you also to the team at Sydney Uni who collaborated with us to produce this discussion The Journey Home, Reconciliation Through Repatriation, which you can now also watch on iView. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we take a look at the impact of changes to criminal justice legislation in the Northern Territory on Aboriginal juveniles. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.